officially begin. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It's great to see you all. So, all right, today is Wednesday, May 19th. So DPP for today is going to be the Torah portion of Nusso. And we have a bunch to learn. And as I mentioned, we're going to do some Mishnayis as well in honor of my grandfather. Tzvi Hirsh Ben Chaim Yishayo HaKohen. So let us begin. I'm going to share my screen. And we are ready to roll. I hope that comes up. Thumbs up if you can see it. Nasso. Okay, perfect. Okay, awesome. So let's start from the beginning. And let's just, let's learn. Let's learn Torah. Okay, Numbers chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take a census. Ooh, if you remember last week, it was all about, well, numbers, right? Book of Numbers, counting the Jewish people, um, the 12 tribes, and then counting the tribe of Levi, the Levites, separately, and they were counted from 30 days and up, and then they were appointed from ages 30 years to 50 years for specific tasks, and we spoke about how each family has a, each of the three Levite families has a different task. Kahara has its task. Gershon and Merari have their tasks, etc. So now we're up to the family of Gershon. So here we go, verse 22. Take a census of the sons of Gershon, of them too, following their father's houses according to their families. Again, father's houses, tribal affiliation, including priesthood and Levitehood, goes by the patrilineal model, whereas Jew- Jewish... Nis, there we go, Jewishness, goes by the mother. So the mother is the core Jewishness. The dad is the tribal affiliation. Here we go. From the age, so this is the Gershon family, from the age of 30 and up until the age of 50 years. So 30 years to 50 years, you shall count them all. Okay? Oh, sorry, you should count them. All who come to join the legion to perform service in the tent of meeting. Give me one second. Let's get Matt in on the action. All right. Matt, welcome. Welcome to the action. It's great to have you here. Okay. So we are talking about the census of the Gershonites. Hey, nice. Our outdoors. Beautiful. Looks like Miami Beach over there. I don't know why. All right. Looks nice. So let's, let's continue. In, I, I spent a year in South Beach, in the yeshiva over there, which is, uh, I don't know if it's an interesting place for yeshiva. But it was I was go- on, on South Beach for a year, too. Oh, really? I was on 12th and Alton. That's where the yeshiva was. Yeah, I was right, I was like right next to the W Hotel. Where is that? It's right on the main, it's in the central part of the, on the beach, South Beach. It's like, you know... Ocean Drive? Was it like Ocean no, Drive? No, it's right on... Collins? Collins. Well, it's whatever road is right... I think it's Collins. It was right on yeah. the beach. I was right on the beach. Yeah. And so I went to the synagogue that was the historic one. Yes. I think I went to that one. It was like on 5th or something, like south. Yeah. You know, very historic building. Yes. Yes. I think I was there. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Cool. Good to see you, Matt. So let's jump in. So that we're taking the, the census of the Gershon tribe. The Ger- well, not the tribe. The Gershon, the tribe of Gershon of the Levite tribe. And the, the, the appointment is for 30 years to 50 years. In other words, that is their eligibility age for working for their specific task. So you should count them. So take another census of these specific um, Levites, the Gershonites, all who come to join the legion to perform service in the time of the meeting. Okay, so what, what do they do? What do these Gershonite folks, 30 to 50, do? This is the service of the Gershonite families to serve and to carry. Okay, so what's the carrying business? They shall carry the curtains of the Mishkan and the tent of meeting, its covering and the Tachash skin covering overlaid upon it and the screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting. The hangs of the courtyard, the screen at the entrance of the gate of the courtyard, which is around the Mishkan, and the altar, the ropes, and all the work involved, and everything that is made for them, and thus shall they serve. So basically, it's the screens, the curtains, the tapestries, the covers, all the textiles were their job to deal with. That was the family of Gershon. 
All the service of the sons of Gershon shall be by the instruction of Aaron and his sons. Remember, it's Aaron and his sons. It's the Kohanim that oversee the Levim, the Kohen, plural, the Kohens, Kohanim, are overseeing the Levites in their service. We also said this regarding, if you recall last week, the Kahat family, their job was to transport the actual items, like the Ark, the menorah, etc., and had to be covered. Remember we talked about the covering? They were covered in like these bags and cloths and whatnot, and we said that they should not get involved until the Kohanim, until the priests, actually cover everything. Then they go and they transport it and whatever, so they get involved, but they have to be appointed by the Kohanim, by the priests. Same thing here. Right, their, their job is all by the instruction of Aaron and his sons. Regarding all their burden and all their service, you shall designate their entire burden as their charge. Burden, by the way, has a negative connotation. It doesn't mean burden, like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. It means their, their task. This, which may not actually sound better now that I say that, um, but task, burden, in a good way, it means responsibility, which... Here means in a positive way. 28. This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting and their charge, which was under the supervision of Itamar, the son of Aaron the Kohen. Ooh, if you recall, Aaron, Aaron, had four sons. Nadav and Avihu passed away. And then he had Elazar, Elazar and Itamar. So Itamar was the one who would oversee the... Um, the operations of the Gershonite family. All right, that's the first reading. So far, so good. We're left with one family left, right? We have one family. There are three Levite families, Gershon, Kat, Merari. Well, we went out of order a little bit. Kahat, we spoke about at the end of last week's reading. They carried the vessels. Gershon, we just read about as the tapestries. Merari, do you remember what the Merari family did? Remember they did the poles and the beams and the sockets? They did the structure. Not the curtains, not the stuff, but the structure. So here we go. Verse 29. As for the sons of Merari, that's the third and final Levite family, you shall count them by their families according to their father's houses. Same deal. From the age of 30 years and upward to the age of 50 years, you shall count them, all who come to the legion to perform service in the tent of meeting. That was their work span, 30 to 50 years old, and they were counted to do this work. And what, what is their work? Here we go. Verse 31. This is the charge of their burden for all their service in the tent of meeting. In other words, this is what they did. The planks of the Mishkan. They carried and transported the planks of the Mishkan. That means like the walls, right? It's bars. Remember they put bars for support that went in horizontally? Remember we had the, the picture, right? They were like sockets and it went in. Not sockets. They were like uh, rings and... Whatever. Anyway, th there, were, there were planks, there were, there were bars, its pillars, and its sockets. Basically, the structure itself of the Mishkan, both the little Mishkan building as well as the larger outer courtyard. All the walls and bars and pillars and planks and sockets they were in charge of. Here we go. The pillars of the surrounding courtyard. There we go, right? Their sockets, their pegs, and their ropes, all their implements for all the work involved. That was their job. So I want to clarify this. Verse 31 and verse 32. Verse 31 are the planks of the Mishkan. That's the little covered building. I say little, but I mean the relatively smaller covered building. Bars, pillars, and sockets of that building. And then the surrounding courtyard, also the pillars, the sockets, the pegs, and the ropes. Remember they had like, like a... A tent almost, right? Well, it's not a tent, but it had ropes with pegs, silver pegs into the ground. Okay. Um, you shall designate by name the implements charged to them for their burden. Everything needs to be organized, etc. This is the service of the families of the son of Merari for all their service and tent of meeting, which was under the supervision of Itamar. The son of Aaron the Kohen, again, Itamar, the youngest son of, of Aaron, the high priest, Itamar, was in charge of delegating to the family of Merari. Okay, well, that's it. We appointed all the Levites and we gave them their task. So here we go. Now what about the census? Moses, Aaron, and the chieftains of the congregation counted the sons of the Kohatites. 
Now that we said what they should be doing and they, they need to be counted, well, what? let's talk about the counting. So they actually did it. They actually did the counting of the family number one, the Kahatites, according to their families and their father's houses. So let's get some numbers in. Let's get some results. From the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, all who come to the legion for the service of the tent of meeting, their tally, according to their families, again, Kahat families, 30 to 50 years old, the number was 2,750. That is far less than all the Levite Kahatites aged 30 days and up. Remember last week we had a different census, 30 days and up? That was, the Levites were counted twice. One 30 days and up, and one 30, 30 years to 50 years. So don't get confused between the 30s, right? There were 30 days and up, and then 30 years to 50 years, a 20-year span. So that was like, I don't know, seven, 8,000. But the 30 to 50 years old is only 2,750. These are the numbers of the Kadite families, all who served in the tent of meeting, 30 years to 50 years, who were counted by Moses and Aaron as dictated by the Lord to Moses. All right, that's Kahat. What about Gershom? And remember, Kahat, these guys carried the vessels. What about Gershon? They did the tapestries. The tally of the sons of Gershon, according to their families and their father's houses. Again, that very slim window from the age of 30 years and up until the age of 50 years. All who come to the legion for the service of the tent of meeting. So their total, the curtain transporters, according to their family and their father's houses, 2,630. Okay, so we had 2,750 Kahatites. And Gershonites, we had 2,630, a little bit less. Let's go final family. These are the numbers of the families of the sons of Gershon. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We're, we're just concluding it. So these are the numbers of the families of the sons of Gershon, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron counted as directed by the Lord. All right, let's, let's do the final family. Third and final family, and our counting will be concluded. The tally of the families of the sons of Merari, according to their families and their father's houses, from the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, all who come to legion for work and at the meeting, again, Merari, the Merarites, Merariites, Merariites, they count, they carried the beams, the sockets, the pillars, the pegs, and the supports. That's what they did. So how many were in that group to help with that? Their tally, according to their families, ooh, this is the most, 3,200. So we had 2,750, 2,630, and now 3,200. These are the numbers of the families of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron counted as directed by the Lord to Moses. I think it's good because you need probably more people to carry the heavy walls and, and beams and sockets. So I guess it's good they had, they had a few extra in the pool to, uh, to choose from. All right, let's add them all together. You ready? All the numbers whom by Moses, Aaron, and the chieftains of Israel counted the Levites according to their families and their fathers' houses from the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years who are fit to perform the service for the service and the work of caring. And the tenth of meeting, deep breath, their tally. In other words, if you add up the 2750, the 2630, and the 3200, their tally was 8,500. And 80. That was the grand total. 8580. 8580 practicing serving Levites 30 to 50. So the age 30 and up, you had much more. Th sorry, 30 days and up, obviously much more. 30 to 50 years old, that narrow span where they would work in the tabernacle to move it, transport it, guard it, whatever. 8580. As directed by the Lord, they were appointed by Moses, each man to his service and his burden. They were counted as the Lord had commanded Moses. So far, so good. And it's moving actually fairly quickly so that we get a good picture of what's going on. Let's do the third, no, no print options here. Let's do the third reading. Here we go. Okay, now we switch gears. We talk about something completely different. All right. Torah always keeps us on our toes. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, New commandment, command the children of Israel 
to banish from the camp all those afflicted with tzarat or with a male discharge and all those unclean through contact with the dead. In other words, somebody who contracts ritual impurity, again, it's not a punishment, it's not a bad thing, right? It's, it's a thing. It just is what it is. It's, it's impurity. So someone who's impure should not be living amongst everybody. To make other people impure, rather they should be banished from the camp or quarantined outside the camp. Both male and female you shall banish. You shall send them outside the camp. They shall not defile their camps in which I dwell among them. By the way, this and other laws in Torah led many to to say and assume, and I don't know if it's exactly precise, that Jews for a long time had this notion of quarantining those who were ill or otherwise unhealthy. Now, again, I don't believe this is unhealthy. This is spiritually, you know, impure, which is a different thing altogether. When we call it sarat, right, it's not leprosy per se. It's a spiritual skin ailment, right? Nonetheless, this notion of kind of separating things out, or for example, there's another law in Torah that says that if you're making a, what's the word, what's the nice way to say it? Latrine? Is that like a toilet, like a bathroom? Okay, you should do it outside the camp. Don't do it amongst. So the idea of like kind of separating out, I'm not, God forbid, comparing, by the way, people, but I'm just saying like the notion of kind of keeping the camp sacred and physically and spiritually clean and pure is something that, that, that is part of the Jewish, um, it's part of the, part of the, Fabric of Jewish society from the beginning. Again, it may seem harsh. Oh my gosh, banishing from the camp. But again, the, 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 the rationale for this is that they should not cause others to contract ritual, impu- ritual impurity. And again, I'm also mentioning even physically, there were also um, steps taken also to preserve the integrity of the camp. Let's continue verse number four. The children of Israel did so. Yeah, they sent them outside the camp as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So did the children of Israel do. In other words, they followed this law. And, and if somebody became impure, they had a place where they could send them out until they became pure and then they came back in. All right, let's continue. The Lord then spoke to Moses saying, again, more laws, more mitzvot. Tell the children of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any of the sins against man to act treacherously against God, and that person is found guilty. Notice what's going on here. When a person, a man or woman, commits any of the sins against man to act treacherously against God. Well, hold on. Is it against man or is it against God? What are we talking about here? So we toggle some Rashi. And we're talking about a situation here. Scripture deals, sorry, repeats the section dealing with a thief who swears falsely. So Rashi is dealing with why are we repeating these laws. If you recall a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, we talked about this. But, and that's what Rashi is dealing with. But I want to explain first, before we get to any questions, just to explain what does it mean that we're talking about sins against man and to act treacherously against God. So number one, the sin against man is theft. So somebody stole something. And then when they were accused of it, then they compounded the sin by acting treacherously against God, by swearing falsely in court that they did not steal. Are you with me on this? So it's the cover-up, right? There's, there's the original infraction, which is the theft, which is a sin against man. And then there's the perjury under oath, which is, I mean, the court, it's not about their ego. It's really about standing before God in the court and, you know, swearing in God's name, so to speak, that one did not steal when one actually did. So that's a treachery against God, the false denial. So the sinning, the theft is sin against man, and the the denial and the the false oath is a treacherous act against God. Well, if a person then subsequently wants to come clean and says, I feel so guilty, I can't live with myself, I stole and then I lied about it and I I, I swore falsely under oath, that's it, I'm returning the money. So what you do then, I just want to, let's put Rashi on pause for a second. The law is, right, verse 7, they shall confess the sin they committed, make restitution for the principal amount, and add a fifth to it. 
and give it to the one against whom he was guilty. So the law is that if you want to come clean, fine. Let's say he stole 100 bucks. You give him 100 plus a fifth plus another 20. 120 bucks. That's what the law is. Now, the truth is we did already have this in Leviticus. So, 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 Rashi here, the, one, the Rashi that I said it a moment ago, Rashi here asked the question, why is Torah repeating the law of the, of the fellow who pays a fifth? Uh, the fellow who stole, denied, and then gets busted, he pays a fifth, an extra fifth. Why is it repeated? So Rashi says it's repeated here because two new matters are introduced. In other words, two details that were not in the first rendition. In Leviticus, two, two details are added here in the book of Numbers. What are they? The first detail is that is written, they shall confess, which you saw in verse 7, they shall confess, which teaches us that the thief is not required to pay a fifth and bring a guilt offering when incriminated by two witnesses until he admits to the deed himself. So if the thief is ultimately busted and caught by two witnesses after swearing falsely under oath, he doesn't bring the extra fifth. He's not a good... That wasn't a cool thing to do, but he doesn't bring a fifth until he confesses it himself. He has to admit it, and then he brings the extra fifth. And the second matter is that what is stolen from a proselyte must be given to the Kohen, from the Kohanim, and that's the second idea. I guess the proselyte maybe doesn't have family or something, so it has to be given to the priest on behalf. Okay, Rabbi, yes. What if the person doesn't, you know, confess? Yeah, well, they have to, they're, they're on the hook. For the original principle, but it seems that the extra fifth is not tacked on. Although, I, I, maybe then it, it falls under the category of, of kefo, kefo, which is double. You pay, you pay double the amount. I'm not sure. But the fifth, the extra fifth here is only when there's confession. They shall confess this. Now, it doesn't mean if you don't confess, you're off the hook. But it just means the extra fifth is not added unless there's a confession. Okay, but, oh, here we go. Yeah, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, as I said before, that's the second point. If the man has no kinsman. Yeah, to make restitution. Okay, so basically, let's say the theft was done, and now it's a few years later, and the fellow has passed away, and now there's no one. Who are you going to restitute to? So what do you do with the money? But if the man has no kinsman to him to make restitution, and I guess the assumption is that he's no longer living, because if he's living, you give it back to him. The, the victim of the crime, right? So the victim of the crime. So the guy, let's say years later, admits to it. Oh, he can't live with himself anymore. I, 30 years ago, I stole money. Let me track down this guy and his family. No one. Garnished. Which I think is why Rashi used the case of the fellow who converts. Because maybe he didn't have, he doesn't, somebody who is born into a Jewish family might have a large Jewish family. And then it might be more unlikely that there's no kinsman to return the money to. But if somebody who's relatively new to the tribe, so to speak... So it could be more of a, a plausible scenario where there might, again, it doesn't have to be, but there might not be a kinsman to make restitution. So then what do you do? The debt, which is restored to the Lord, is to be given to the Kohen. So you give it to the Kohen. This is besides the atonement ram through which expiation is made for him. So there's money, there's the principal, there is the extra fifth, and there is an atonement ram. And we're adding here, if there's no kinsman, then you give it to the Kohen. All right, let's continue. And if the guy's not around, if the victim is not around, and there's no kinsman, but the guy wants to make restitution, who do I pay? Who do I give the money to? Give it to the coin. All right, here we go. Every offering of all the children of Israel's holy things, which is brought to the coin, shall be his. Very interesting verse. Basically, when you bring an offering to the Kohen, it shall be his. What does that mean? Number one, it's the Kohen's. The Kohen can eat. If it's an offering that the Kohen can eat, he eats it. The one who brought it eats it. But it also tells us that the prerogative of which Kohen to give it to. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not, an, um, it's not necessarily an offering. It's truma, which is the donation. The, 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 <coughs> the, the, the donation that's given to the Kohen to support the Kohen. You can choose which Kohen you give it to. So the Kohen keeps it, but you can choose. Let's see Rashi on this. It's referring to the first fruits. Here we go. What does it mean brought to the Kohen? 
These are, so Rashi says, these are the first fruits of which I say you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So therefore, Scripture states, to the Kohen it shall be his. Scripture teaches us regarding the first fruits that they are given to the Kohen. And again, and again, you get to choose which Kohen you're going to give it to, and that is what the Torah is saying here at the end. Everyone's holy things shall belong to him. Whatever a man gives to the Kohen shall be his. You know, let me toggle Rashi again. I, I want to see if I can find this in Rashi. Um... Mm, all right, there's another explanation. Here, okay. I'm just, I'm going to, I don't necessarily want to read the whole Rashi, but the punchline here, Scripture states, everyone's holy things belong to him. What does it mean, holy things belong to him? You have to give it to the coin. But that informs us that their benefit to give them to whichever coin it pleases them belongs to the owner. In other words, what belongs to you as the farmer? You have to give your first fruits to, the, to a coin. So you have to give it away. So what belongs to you? the prerogative of which Kohen to give it to. And the pleasure that you'll get from giving it to your favorite Kohen, that is what you get out of the equation. So you're giving, but you get to choose which Kohen you give it to. There's another interpretation, Rashi says, an Agadic interpretation. Everyone's holy things belong to him means that if one withholds his tithes and does not give them to the Kohen or Levite, those tithes shall be his. For eventually his field will produce only a tenth of its usual yield. If you're supposed to give a tenth and you don't give a tenth, then the Torah says, then you're going to get only a tenth. You're going to start, your field is going to only start producing a tenth of what it used to. That is the consequence for not giving the tenth. Are you with me on this? So let's say the field produces a hundred, I don't know, a hundred stalks of wheat. Just giving it an easy number. So you're supposed to give ten to the Kohen. You don't, then it's yours. What does that mean? Not that you get to keep it all. Oh, profit. Instead of 90, now I got 100. That's a good deal. No, the field is only going to start producing 10. The business is going to go down when we don't keep our end of the deal, our end of the bargain. Okay, let's jump into, what, where are we time-wise? Uh, we still might be good. Oh, you know what? Mm, this is a whole conversation. Tomorrow we're going to do this. Okay, this is a very long... Um, okay, there's three major topics in the fourth reading, which is really today's reading. There's the, the situation of Sota, which is the suspected adulteress. There is the law of the Nazir, the Nazarite, the fellow who, abstain, who, who vows to abstain from alcohol and haircuts and impurity. And then there's the priestly blessing at the end. Little priestly blessing action right here. So there's a, there's a lot of action in this reading. It's, a, it's quite a long reading, as you can see. Maybe, I, I feel like maybe we should get a fresh start tomorrow with it because it's a, whole, it's a whole section to jump into. Okay, so we did three readings today. Tomorrow, there's no JLI tomorrow, so we're on with DBP. So we'll, uh, we'll cover it, we'll cover maybe four and five then, and then six and seven on Friday. Okay, so again, tomorrow we're dealing with the suspected adulterous wife. This is a fellow, a husband who suspects that his wife may be doing something behind his back, and there's a way to essentially exonerate her and bl give blessings to her and the family from that place of suspicion to a place of blessing, assuming that she is indeed innocent. And then we have the case of the Nazarite vow and the case of the, and, and then the priestly blessing description, which is very beautiful. All of that in an action-packed fourth reading, same bad time, same bad channel tomorrow. Now we're going to jump into Mishnah. So I looked at the time and I saw we had time, but we are going to study some Mishnayas, so I want to do this. Um, I want to give time for everything and give proper attention to everything. So let's jump into Mishnayas. Once again, we are learning the Mishnah in honor of my grandfather. Tzvi Hirsh Ben Chaim Yishayo Akohen. May his um, may his memory indeed be for a blessing, and uh, bring blessings to our family and 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 our extended family, all of you as well. Um, I know how much uh, our community meant to him, and how much uh, you know he loved 
participating in the classes. So certainly, this is of uh, this is a beautiful merit in his honor. So let's jump in. We're up to wow, yeah, chapter three. Here we go. We're talking about the Shema. If you recall, we're talking about the Shema and, and prayer and all that, all that stuff. We talked about when you say the Shema and how you say the Shema. So now we have another detail. One whose deceased relative is laid out on buried before him. So in other words, somebody whose close relative passes away and is still not buried. That person is exempt. The relative is exempt from the recitation of Shema, from the Amida prayer, and from the mitzvah to don phylacteries, tefillin as well as all positive mitzvot mentioned in the Torah until the deceased has been buried. This is what we call the laws of Onen, which is basically stating that a person who is in, an, in, in that initial period after the passing of a loved one, where the, the focus is on arranging and coordinating a proper burial for the loved one, laying them to rest, so they are absolved from all positive commandments, including prayer, Shema. Amida prayer, wrapping tefillin, all positive mitzvot are basically suspended until the arrangements have been made and the person's been laid to rest. Now, if all the arrangements are made and, and, you know, and kind of just waiting, then that's something else. Then you should do a mitzvah in, in the meantime. But if the preparations need to happen, then that's the, that's the only focus. Now, the Mishnah continues. And we've talked about this before, right? Is this ringing a bell, these, these laws about... Um, okay. Now, with regard to the pallbearers and their replacements, and the replacements of their replacements, so those located before the beer who have not yet carried the deceased and those located after the beer. So those before the beer who are needed to carry the beer... That means the, um, it says the, the mita, the bed, but I'm assuming it means like the coffin bed. So um, those before the beer who are needed to carry the beer are exempt from reciting Shema, while those after the beer, even if they are still needed to carry it, since they've already carried the deceased, they are obligated to recite Shema. However, both these and those are exempt from reciting the Amida prayer since they are preoccupied and are, and are unable to focus and pray with the appropriate Intent. Okay, so if we look here on the side, you see here, it says, a person who has not yet buried his dead is called an onen. Right, you see that on the side over there? On the right side of the screen? I hope you guys can see that. Can you guys see this, what I'm highlighting? Okay. He is exempt from saying the Shema, the Tefillah, Amidah, and putting out Tefillin. In the Talmud, they add that he's exempt from all mitzvot in the Torah, positive mitzvot. It is as if as he, along with his unburied dead relative, are considered to be out of the realm of normal human beings who are obligated to the commandments. Until he buries the dead, he can't really participate in other normal societal interactions, including mitzvot. Okay, so the onin is exempt from the Shema. I'm just doing the commentary. The onin is exempt from the Shema and other mitzvot because there is just no way he can concentrate on fulfilling them until he has buried his dead. The pallbearers are exempt because they are too busy and concentrating on other matters and would not be able to have the proper intentions. The mission does not distinguish between those walking in front of the beer, the stretcher with the dead body on it, and those walking the beer is basically the stretcher with the dead body on it, and those walking behind it. The only distinction it makes is between those who are needed to carry the beer and those who are not needed. The pallbearers are exempt from Shema only if they are needed. If they are not needed, they can recite the Shema while walking with the beer. Basically, if they need to concentrate on, on carrying the, the deceased, then they are exempt from the Shema, if they're not needed, then they can recite the Shema. Back inside, mission number two, back on the left side of the page. After they buried the deceased and returned, a second here. Okay. Here we go. No, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm just uh, looking at... Here we go. Yeah, I, I just like putting up this commentary on the side, and it didn't automatically 
um, advance with the next one. So I just manually close it and reopen it. All right, here we go. Uh, mission number two. After they buried the deceased and returned, so after one's loved one has been laid to rest and now they're back home, if they have sufficient time to begin to recite Shema, conclude before they arrive at the row. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, we're talking here about uh, they're st still still in the still in the cemetery. So if they've buried the deceased and now are going back, heading back, head, heading on the way back. So if there's still time to begin reciting Shema and finish before they arrive at the row, the row is formed by those who attended the burial through which the bereaved family will pass in order to receive consolation. So for for anyone who's been at a at a Jew Jewish funeral, so you know that. After the funeral, so they form, the attendees form a row, and the mourners, sorry, the, yeah, the mourners walk in the row, and everyone wishes the mourners the, the customary um, uh, blessing of consolation and comfort. So if the mourners, remember, so the mourner was exempt from saying Shema until their loved one was laid to rest. And now their loved one is laid to rest, and now they're walking back, but they've yet to hit the row and walk through. If they can say Shema in between that time after the, the, the burial and walking the row, they should. If they do not have sufficient time to conclude reciting the entire Shema, they should not begin. Because it's not appropriate to be saying the Shema while other people are wishing you comfort and consolation. Does that make sense? I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah? So it makes sense. Now, why are we so concerned about Shema? I, I, just to give this context, like, say Shema later. It could be down to the wire. Remember, Shema in the daytime can only be said for the first few hours of the day. So the first few hours, you were exempt. Not you, but one was exempt because they were getting ready for the mitzvah of, of, of laying the loved one to rest. And then the loved one was laid to rest. And now, all right, a few minutes left. So should I say it right now? No, I'm approaching the row. So if you can finish it before you get to the row, fine. If not, don't begin. Now, those standing in the row, those in the interior row, directly before whom the mourners will pass and who will console them, they are exempt from reciting Shema because they have an obligation to wish the person comfort and consolation. And if they're saying Shema, guess what? They're going to be like, uh, I'm not. I'm saying Shema. I can't. I can't wish you. Hamakam. You know. I can't wish you the the consolation. And that's not right. So the, anyone in the interior row is exempt from Shema, while those in the exterior row, in other words, those in the periphery who stand there only to show respect, because they're basically not going to be able to shout. You know, they're not. They're they're just there because honor and respect, to pay respects. So they can say the Shema. And they're obligated to recite the Shema, again, assuming that it's down to the wire. By the way, if you have another few hours to say the Shema, take it easy, right? Do it after the whole funeral is concluded. But again, the whole context here is if it's like down to the wire and there's a few minutes left and you're concerned. So again, the mourner themselves who just laid their loved one to rest, right? So if they can say it before they get to the row, fine. If not, then wait till, then wait till that's over. Rabbi? Yeah. Of having those that are right, you, you know, not at the front line, do the Shema while the front line is giving their personal condolences. That kind of seems nice. It does, yeah. I agree with you, yeah. So there's prayers happening, there's consolation, yeah. It could, uh, it, 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 it could enhance the spirit of the, of the, of the occasion, an occasion of the, of the moment. All right, here we go. So here we talk about, um, so this is a, these are mitzvot that are time constrained. So the Torah says, so the mission says women, slaves and minors are exempt from the recitation of Shema and from tefillin and from phylacteries, but are obligated in prayer, mezuzah and grace after meals. So certain mitzvot that are time constrained, women are exempt. It doesn't mean that they can't just means that they're exempt from doing it. In other words, they're not, they're not obligated. For example, saying Shema. But a woman could and should if she can, but again, it's not an obligation. So, and, but there is an obligation in prayer in general, right? Maybe not the Shema between a certain hour, this time and that time, 
But in prayer, mezuzah on the door, grace after meals, etc., women are obligated just the same as men. Now, let's continue. Ezra the scribe decreed that one who is ritually impure, this is the introduction to mission number four, Ezra the scribe decreed that one who is ritually impure because of a seminal emission may not engage in matters of Torah until he has immersed in a ritual bath and purified himself. This halacha, this law was accepted. So Ezra the scribe was, just to give you a timeline, Ezra the scribe lived at the time, the early years of the second temple, as the Jews were returning from the first exile in Babylonia. So Ezra the scribe was one of the leading scholars and sages then. So his decree, rabbinic decree was, a man who's ritually impure, seminal mission, should not engage in Torah stuff until he goes to a mikvah, ritual bath, mikvah. This halacha was accepted over the course of many generations. However, many disputes arose with regard to the second here, with regard to the Torah matters to which it applies. Regarding this, the mission says, if the time for the recitation of Shema arrived, and one is impure due to a seminal emission. He may contemplate Shema in his heart, but neither recites the blessings preceding Shema nor the blessings following it. Over food which, after partaking, one is obligated by Torah law to recite a blessing, one recites a blessing afterward, but does not recite a blessing beforehand, because the blessing recited prior to eating is, an act, is, requir- is a requirement by rabbinic law. And therefore, that's suspended in the face of this impurity. And all, in all of these instances, Rabbi Yehuda says, he recites a blessing beforehand and thereafter in both the case of Shema and the case of food. So Rabbi Yehuda disagrees. So we have two opinions. One opinion that says you basically do less in that state of impurity. And Rabbi Yehuda says you do it. You say the blessing before and afterwards, both for Shema and for food, basically business as usual. Okay, let's see if there's any commentary here. Um, commentaries, commentaries. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at it here quickly. Okay, um, yeah, that's, that's basically what we said. There's two opinions. One says that you... Don't say the blessings before and after. One says you do. Well, I mean, with the bench, with the with the blessing after meal, you always do the after blessing because that's biblical. But some say that the other ones are uprooted. You don't do it. Rabbi Yehuda says you do do it. And commentaries. This last line is interesting. Commentaries disagree over whether or not Rabbi Yehuda thinks that he recites the Shema out loud or just in his heart. Okay, um, let's continue. Uh, mission number five. The Mishnah, this Mishnah contains various statements with regard to individuals with different types of ritual impurity, as well as the need to distance oneself from filth and impurity. All right, here we go. One who was standing in prayer, and who recalled that he experienced a seminal emission, and according to this opinion, he is prohibited from praying, so he should not interrupt his prayer, rather he should abridge each individual blessing. That means standing in prayer is usually a euphemism for the Amida. So then do a, an abridged version of the Amida, basically. So abridge each blessing, that means each of the 18 or 19 blessings. They stated a general principle. One who descended to immerse himself. Okay, fine, so now something else. Um, here's a general rule. One who descended to immerse himself in the mikvah, if he is able to ascend, cover himself with a garment, and recite the morning Shema before sunrise, he should ascend, cover himself, and recite Shema. If not... He should cover himself in the water and recite Shema there. You see that? In other words, you have, when you pray, you have, to be, you have to be wearing clothes. But it's saying that you, if you're in the mikvah, right? So then ideally you come out, towel off, get dressed, and say Shema. But if you're going to run out of time, then you can actually do it in the mikvah. Because the mikvah itself is, so to speak, covering, covering the person. The person is covered in the water. Right? That's what it says. If not, he should cover himself in the water and recite Shema there. Okay? Now, he may not, however, cover himself in either foul water or water in which flax was soaked until he pours other water into it. In other words, if it's gross water, that's not the right context for praying. Listen, 
Baruch Hashem nowadays, you, a mikvah, whether it's a men's mikvah or a women's mikvah, the, mik, the mikvahs typically are very nice. Beautiful women's mikvahs especially, they're like spas nowadays. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's literally like stunning. But men's mikvahs, not, not so much. I, I mean, they're functional, but they're, but they're not bad. But, you know, back in the day, people would immerse themselves in whatever body of water they could find. And sometimes, you know, the water wasn't clean. And so the point here is, if it's not clean water, it may not make it a non-kosher mikvah, but it's not the right context to say some prayers inside because it's just not a, it's not a nice place. It's not, it's not a befitting, it's not, it's not kavadik. It's not honorable for that to happen. Okay. And in general, oh, yeah. I'm just trying to understand. So um, my understanding then is so women generally go to the mikvah once a month? Correct. Men may be going as... M many men go every morning. Oh, every morning. Every morning as uh, whether, you know, out of the need for what we've been talking about today or whether just for additional doses of, of purity. So, yeah, many men in many communities go every single morning. Shabbat included. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, uh, again, now here's, here's another element to this Mishnah. It's an interesting Mishnah. It had like three different pieces to it. And in general, how far must one distance himself from urine and feces in order to recite Shema? At least four cubits. In other words, if there's waste, right? So then don't say Shema right there. It's not nice. So how far should you go away from that? Four cubits, which by the way, you know what four cubits is? Six feet. This is why, halacha, Jewish law, the standard measurement of distance that constitutes enough distance, safe distance, is always four cubits. That's why when the whole six feet came out, everyone's like, like that knows halacha is like, oh, <laughs> Six, six feet? You're kidding me, right? I mean, that's literally... Judaism's gifts to the world. Yeah, there you go. Right. We had the four cubits, six feet. We had that number. I don't know, I don't know the history of how that number became the number, you know, in, in our times, a year ago. But in halacha, four cubits is considered the average height of a person. Like if you're lying, about six feet, right? Five, between five and six feet is the average height of a person. Um... You know, you know, somewhere five and a half, six feet, whatever, for a man. And, um, and so that's, you know, the distance of the length of a person becomes, or maybe person standing with their arm span. Is that true that a person's arm span is the same as their height? I've heard that before. Is that true? Like if a person stretches, the, I'm stretching my arm, right and left, right? So the, the wingspan, so to speak, I think is similar to one's height, I think. So either way, it's like if I extend my hands... Right, so creating that buffer, I guess in this case I'm in the middle, but it's not really the middle and three feet on each side, it's really six feet from this um, waist. By the way, this is why we don't pray near a bathroom. You know, if there's a bathroom, make sure the door's closed, right, etc. Like you don't wanna pray in a, in a, in a, in a, near an area that is not clean. Um, okay, oh, one more Mishnah and then we're gonna close that out for today. Continuing the earlier discussion of the halacha of, of immersion for Torah study and prayer for one who experienced a seminal emission. Back on that conversation. The mission discusses the case where individuals who were already impure with a severe form of ritual impurity are exposed to the impurity of a seminal emission as well. So in other words, they were already impure, now there's another uh, impurity. They're required to immerse themselves and purify themselves with the impurity of the seminal emission, even though they remain impure due to a more severe impurity. So listen to this. Let's say a man has a, an impurity that's going to last for seven days, but then he has a seminal emission. And now that renders him impure until he goes to mikvah. The question is, is there any point, because he's anyway impure with the other impurity. Are you with me on the question? Right? He already has a seven-day impurity anyways, day three. So now he has another, like, more temporary impurity. But should he go to the mikvah? And the answer is yes, even though he has an outstanding impurity that still has time on the clock. Consequently, here we go, even a Zav, whose impurity lasts at least seven days, the Zav is someone who has an unhealthy, I think the word was, the translation when we studied it, we studied it a few weeks, a month or two ago in, in, in the Torah, the TVP, 
It's a venereal discharge or something. That might have been the, the expression used. So Zav, whose impurity lasts at least seven days. So if he, this person, so he's on the clock anyway for another, let's say, five days. But he now experienced a seminal emission for which, were he not a Zav, he would be impure only for one day. Um, or a menstruating woman who discharged semen, despite the fact that she is already impure with a severe impurity unaffected by her immersion, and a woman who engaged in conjugal relations with her husband and later saw menstrual blood. In other words, in all these cases where there is a larger impurity and then a more temporary impurity, so to speak, they all require immersion, even though they will still be impure for a more extended period of time, and Rabbi Yehuda exempts them from emission. Once again, there's a debate in the Mishnah. So there you go. So that is the the um, that is the Mishnah. All right. Fine. Okay. Listen. There's commentaries here. I don't know that I want to read the whole thing. Fine. Okay. It is what it is. This I think more or less we got it right. So even if the person has a seven day impurity and then he has a one day impurity, go to Mikvah for the one day impurity even though the clock is still, even though they're still impure after that, but still you, you get rid of, the, you get rid of the, the minor impurity and you don't wait till everything is done. All right, this concludes chapter three of Tractate Brachot. The total of, how many chapters are the total? Nine. So we are exactly a third of the way done. My goal, this is my goal, is to... My goal is to get um, a chapter a day. Let's see chapter four. How many missions are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Doable. Doable. Five is one, two, three, four, five. They're a little bit long. Okay, doable also. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right. I th- most of the, I think they're more or less doable. That's what I really think. I think that we can do maybe a chapter tomorrow and then a chapter Friday, and then by the end of this week, we will be through chapter five, which is good progress. That's where I'd like to be, and I'd like to finish it by by the end of next week. That's my goal. All right, great to see everyone, Ray and Donna and Matt. It's great to see you guys. Um, Sorry? Tomorrow. Oh, oh, yeah, let's, well, let's let's gauge interest. Who's interested in, a, in an in-person DPP? Oh, I know, Matt, you told me that you can't come. I actually asked Matt before. Um, I think Matt said that he cannot come to that. Yes, Matt is unable to make it. Ray, maybe? In person? No pressure. I'm just, just wondering, just taking the temperature. Tomorrow? No? Okay. So then let's see if maybe Sandrine... Might be interested? Then maybe we could do a hybrid. All right, stay tuned. No, no commitment yet for tomorrow. Let's see, let's see if we get, if we get some, some more folks. Um, Donna, not that you're not enough to do it in person, but, you know, there is a bit of a setup. A semi-minion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a setup. You know, if we have, right. you know, three, two, three, whatever already. But, yeah, it's like I have to schlep in people to do some stuff, so. I know, I know, especially with logistics. I'm with you 100%. Yeah, yeah. I'll reach out to Sandrine and I'll, I'll let you know, see where we're holding. All right, well, it's great to see you guys. Have a wonderful day. Um, and tonight, Torah Studies, 7.30 p.m. on Zoom. So join us for that as well. All right. Oh, tonight we talk about singing your song. Singing your song. <laughs> Not... We're going to learn about a choir. We're not necessarily going to have a choir. We're going to learn about a choir. All right. We'll see you guys. Have a, have a wonderful day. Take care. See you soon.